Isaiah, Isaiah 66, Isaiah 66, and we will be reading the first 14 verses, Isaiah chapter 66. This is the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, The sound of the Lord rendering recompense on his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gives birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such things? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in a moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth? Says the Lord. Shall I, who caused to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. And the glory of the nation shall be, an over, uh, shall be like, like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Thus far, God's word. I wondered if you noticed a couple of repetitions in that long-ish passage. We see this idea of trembling at the word of God. You see that in verse 2. You also see that in verse 5. There's also this, this phrase, something about being able to see joy, and that's in verse 5. It's used in a mocking way of people mocking the, the true believers And then in verse 14, God says, yeah, then you will see, you shall see joy. And then we also have 
in verse 7 to 13, we have this major section that talks about the joy of a mother with comforted children. What's happening here is that we have people who are religious people who are mocking those who believe in the Lord and they're even in the same religion. This is given to the people of Israel, people who are worshiping at the temple, the right temple, the temple the Lord has has assembled. And they are mocking and shaming people who are confident of God's acceptance of them. And there are people who are mocking them and they are confident of their own acceptance by God even though they have turned away from God. Shaming people who cling to the word, whose joy and hope for future joy is in God alone, in God's word alone. So many have have comfort that they are accepted by God or who feel comfortable with God's acceptance, but they have really no reason to be comforted that way because they have rejected the Lord. But you also have the problem that there are people who are accepted by the Lord who are worried and fear that they have not been accepted by the Lord, who worry that God would accept them and love them because others are treating them as if they had been rejected by God. Those comfortably feeling like they have God's favor are treating those who trust in God's word as though they are outside of the camp. I wonder if you felt this way. I wonder if you felt comfortable and confident in the fact that you will go to heaven, that God will accept you because you participated in the things of God. You participated in church services, but you really don't love God. You don't care about him. You don't care about his word. Or maybe on the other side, you do love God. You do trust in the gospel. And yet you find it sometimes hard to be comforted by his word, its promises and commands. You have a hard time with these things, especially when others are telling you that it's not enough. It's not enough to trust in God's word and to follow his commands. This is the context that Isaiah is addressing his audience here. And I think that it's quite relevant for us, isn't it? We see this in our day as well. And the first thing that God gives us here is some medicine, some medicine for understanding why this makes no sense to think this way. Some very helpful medicine, some il- an illustration that I think is going to be helpful if you remember this. When you are thinking about your own assurance from God, confidence that he will accept you, this is very good, a good illustration that we can remember often. We see this in the first three verses, and we're going to summarize it this way. Our actions do not move God, but he smiles on the one who is moved by his word. Let's read the first three verses again. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles in my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. As far as God's word. Here you see two ways of thinking about the Lord's favor. 
two ways of thinking about whether the Lord would accept you and be favorable to, to you. And the first is essentially God owes me. I have done these things and God owes me. And the second is I hear, I hear God's word and it provokes me, it nudges me, it causes me to move. I hear it and I really hear it. And God starts talking about heaven and earth. He said, I, I made these things. I don't need a temple. I don't need you to build me a house. Did you see heaven? That's my throne. Did you see the earth? That's, that's my footstool. So you can't think that by building a temple in this case, by building a temple and doing these acts of worship, that you're doing something that God needed. Now, if you are doing something for somebody that they need you to do, you can control them, can't you? If somebody needs something from you, then if you withhold that thing or give it to them, you can kind of control them. Isn't that true? God cannot be controlled. He's not controlled by worship. He's not controlled by the Old Testament building a temple, the New Testament participating in church. He can't be controlled because you don't have anything that he needs. Now, if God doesn't need you, then you can't control him. In certain jobs, the company will require that you give your financial disclosure ahead of time because they'll want to know, is there anybody who can control you? Anybody to whom you owe a debt? Or if you are in, 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 uh, in great uh, financial straits, they might worry that that will have an impact on the decisions you make. Some political positions as well will require that. Can anybody control this man? Can anybody control this woman? But because God doesn't need these, you can't use worship to control him. Even right worship can't control him. The other thing that is wonderful, dear brothers and sisters, those who actually trust in the gospel, if God doesn't need you, that is a beautiful, beautiful relief of all kinds of pressure on you, isn't it? Imagine if you had to provide for a gerbil, provide all the needs of a gerbil. Well, that's not a huge it's not a huge commitment, isn't it? It's not a great financial stress. But what happens if you had to provide for an elephant? Well, the greater that being is, the more stress and pressure is. There's, it's harder and harder to do that. Imagine if the God of the universe depended on you. You'd be crushed. But dear brothers and sisters, the Lord doesn't need you. That is good news. But it is bad news for people who are thinking they can control God by their worship. So then, if there are no expectations, so then if God doesn't need you, does that mean he has no expectations of his people? If he needs nothing from us, then does it matter to him what we do? Well, here we learn here in many places in Scripture, but we're reminded as well that there is a way to know that we have God's pleasure, where his eyes are looking on you with grace or with a smile. And there's a little irony here. Because at the beginning, it seems like God is like, where's that temple that you built for me? I can't really see it. It's, you know, I'm pretty big. I'm pretty far up. I'm in heaven. That's a pretty small temple. I don't really need it. There's some irony. You can't, I can't really see it. What is this temple you're building for me, this house? But he sees. Who does he see? His eyes look toward those. His eyes are on the ones who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at his word. What does it mean to be humble and contrite in heart? Well, first, humble means that you, you recognize your proper relationship with God. 
that you see yourself as creature and him as creator, that he is the potter and you are the clay, he is the servant, you are the master, he is the king and you are the subject. And oh, would it be true that not only is he the king and you're the subject, but wouldn't it be best if he was father and you were child? This is what it means to be humble, to assume the right relationship with God where you are to uh, to submit to him gladly and he is the one to whom you submit. Then he says contrite in heart. And this word contrite, it actually almost means lamed. Like you are lame, but lame of heart. And what does that mean? It means that you recognize that you are helpless to please God. You've got no confidence in your actions whether they're in obedience to God or in disobedience to him. You do not think that these things will put God in your debt. You can't control him. You can't fulfill all of the requirements. You have no confidence that this is why God will love you. And yet you still are confident that he does. Why? He says, those who tremble at God's word. You see that? That's repeated a couple of times. What does it mean to tremble at God's word? If he says... This is the one whom I look, not just the people who are religious, even if it is the right religious actions. But what does it mean to tremble at his word? Well, it means to come under the authority of God's word, which is you never have a choice between God and his word. Well, I want to follow God, but I have to choose between following him and his word. No, his word is his authority. It is how he guides his people. I mean, what is it that we would tremble at when we see God's word, when we hear God's word? What is it that we would tremble at? Well, first, we would see his glory. God's word reveals his glory. It reveals a very glorious God. It tells us that he is the God who made the heavens and the earth, the sky, the sea, and all that is in them. And we see that he is perfect and holy and pure and righteous. He's eternal. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. You see how great he is and how glorious he is, and you recognize that, and you fear him. And what does it mean to fear the Lord, brothers and sisters? It does not mean that you run away from him. To fear the Lord means that it is his pleasure that you would most want. And it is his judgment that you would most fear. Of all the people in the world that you could have a good relationship with, He is the one that you would fear worst having a bad relationship with. This is what it means to fear the Lord. You realize he is the one. To be anybody's enemy, it would be worse to be his enemy. You desire his pleasure. You desire to be pleasing to him. So you see his glory and his word and you tremble at that. This this can move you. You're not just like, let's not water off a duck's back. Secondly, you see his law. You see his law, especially in his Ten Commandments, where his his commands and his expectations of humans made in his image, this is how you image me. This is how you would walk in a way that, that reflects my glory and character. And you see those things and you tremble at that. Not that it makes you afraid, but it moves you. You can submit to it. It corrects you. It can motivate you. Hearing God's law in his word, it can motivate you to do it. And when you realize that you're walking against his law, his word, his law, hearing it again can make you come to your senses and say, no, no, I was sinning and I will turn from my sin. And those who do not tremble at his word, the law of God is irrelevant to them. 
except maybe where it already agrees with something. But God's word can correct you. And then, and then lastly, we'd see his law. Trembles at his word. His gospel is in the word of God, isn't it? And his gospel is the finished work of Christ. It is his offer and pledge of salvation, his promise to save people who belong to Christ. His promise that Christ's death paid for your sins and his, his resurrection from the dead also justifies you and he, it reconciles you to God. And you hear this gospel. And this gospel is not something that's irrelevant to you. You hear it and you love hearing it because what you want the most is to be forgiven of your sins so that you can be reconciled to God. And so the gospel is not something that just bounces off of you and it's irrelevant to you. Not even something like, yeah, I know it's true, but something that you hear it and it has an impact on you. And what he promises, you believe and you want. If God has promised it, I will cling to it. It can comfort me. It can give me confidence. It can quiet my doubts. So to sum up, what does it mean to tremble at God's word? It means that you have ears to hear the word of God. And he says, this is the one to whom the Lord looks upon with acceptance. Not because this earns God's affection or attention, but the man who trusts in God's word, the woman who trusts in God's word, is the man who has God's promises. Now he turns to temple activities. The temple activities of those who did not tremble at God's word. What is important to note is that all of these activities that he's going to list were actually required of the people of God in that covenant. Things changed dramatically when the Lord Jesus came because he fulfilled the temple. He fulfilled the sacrifices. He was the temple. He is the temple. He was the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. He was the priest. He is the priest. And so before Christ came, all these things pointed to him and God said, yes, do this. Do this. This is how you will show you tremble in my word. I want to teach you things about sin and forgiveness and the coming Messiah. So all these things, this was good worship. This was part of what they had to do. This is what they were called to do by God. All of these things, all these activities. But to do them without trembling at God's word, but God's word being irrelevant. How did God see these things? How did God see these things? Well, when you're, you're sacrificing an ox, verse 3, slaughters an ox, is like one who kills a man. Well, you're not supposed to murder, are you? You find that in the Ten Commandments. So he's saying when you're doing this, when you're doing worship without a heart that cares about God's word, it's as if you're breaking the Ten Commandments. It's as if you are killing a man. And what about this? One who sacrifices a lamb without trusting in the Lord, without trembling at his word, is one who breaks a dog's neck. Now, a dog in the Old Testament was not an unclean animal, right? It wasn't like a pig. It wasn't an unclean animal. So um, it, it wasn't unclean to touch. It wasn't ceremonially unclean. But it was something that God said, it, you're not supposed to offer this as a sacrifice. So he's saying, at, at best, it's irrelevant. At best, it's nothing. It's useless. But then he goes on, he says, those who present a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. Now that, that's an unclean animal. And that would be like blasphemy. Even though they're doing the right thing because their hearts did not tremble at God's word, his law and his promises. It was, their worship was like blasphemy. Even though from the outside it looked exactly as it should be. 
But then it gets the worst. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, which was required as part of the Old Testament worship, is like one who blesses an idol. And this means God is saying, it is like apostasy. It is like you have chosen a completely different religion. Not even that you're doing this religion poorly. You have turned to another God, even though you're worshiping me in my temple with my people. And so without a proper relationship to God and his word, these are at best useless. But at worst, it's as if you've turned to a different religion. You become an enemy of the Lord and maybe a worshiper of Zeus or Buddha or the Allah of Islam. Because that's precisely what you've done. All of these religions, what they have in common, these false religions, is that they try to put God in your debt. You control God by your worship. You make him save you by the things you have done, but not so with the true religion, not so with the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in the Old Testament, worship was never to do, done to do something to control God. You can't control God. These were all expressions of people whose hearts trembled at God's word, who trusted in his promises, and who had ears to hear his word. What was the evidence that their hearts had not trembled at God's word? What was the evidence? Let's see this. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abomination. In their heart, their souls did not delight in God. Even when they were obeying God, they, their hearts did not love God. They were doing it, they were obeying God even though they didn't want to, even though they didn't love God. They were doing it as a way to control God. But they didn't love God. They weren't obeying God's law because they loved God. Maybe they were only obeying God's laws when God's laws overlap with their own desires. And then they were selective. They have chosen their own ways in word and deed. Even when they kept a lot of God's law, they were fine to select parts of God's law that they just didn't want to obey. And it shows that it wasn't actually God's law they were obeying. It was really their own hearts. But the one who trembles at God's word loves God's law, loves God's commands, struggles with them, but has a desire to keep all of them. And where you fall, God's word can correct you. You're not saved by keeping God's law, but being a person who is saved by Christ, he will give you a new relationship with his law that you love it. Now, dear Christian, of all the people whose eyes to catch, of all the people who would notice you and care about you, isn't it true that it would be best to have the Lord notice you? have the Lord look upon you. And here he wants to assure you that he does. Even if other people shame you, even if you doubt, even if you doubt and you struggle and you worry, could God love me? Could God accept me? You can be assured if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be assured he looks on you. He notices you. You don't have to draw attention to yourself and have lots of people notice you. You have the Lord God of the universe. He notices you. He notices you in your worry. He notices you in your fear. He notices you in your struggle against sin. And he has not rejected you. 
He loves you. A dear non-Christian, and I'm going to include people who consider themselves Christians in that category. People who go to church, people who participate in the Christian religion, but whose hearts are far from God. If you think that participating in worship services, even the right worship services, Christian ones, if you think that that is what is going to make God love you or forgive you or be good to you, this offers us a very strong warning. If maybe you don't care about God's law and you just feel that you can be selective in it, I can pick this and that and uh, the rest I can ignore. Even if you go to church and you're part of these things, you've been baptized, you take Lord's Supper, dear friend, this is a call to repentance. And the good news is this, calls, this comes before it is too late. There is still time to repent. And turn to the Lord, repent of your sin and trust in the gospel that is found in his word. Our second point is this. Those who shame those who tremble at God's law and gospel will be put to shame. Let's read five and six. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, the sound from the temple, the sound from the Lord, rendering recompense to his enemies. That's far God's word. Not only does God want you to know that his eyes are on you, he wants you to know something about those people who are mocking you and shaming you. Those people who mock you for thinking that the word of God is sufficient, that you don't need more for comfort, and you also certainly do not want less than God's word. You don't, you're not comfortable ignoring parts of God's word as they are. He wants you to know that they, it is they who will be put to shame. Right now, there are times when it feels shameful to be a person who just trusts God in his word, that his law is good and his gospel is good. We are meant to feel shame. And in this particular passage, it's not the shame from the outside world that, we are that God is talking about. It's people who call themselves Christians and who are shaming you we're thinking that a Christian needs to trust all of God's word, needs to love all of God's law. Right now you will feel shamed and cast out, but the Lord assures us that this will not be the case. There will be a day when he returns that it will, you will, nobody will think it is shameful to have trusted in God's word and God's word alone. And then our next point is this. The salvation of God's people comes in a moment, and it is sure. Let's read this, 66, 6 to 9. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in a day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth? says the Lord. Shall I, who causes to bring forth, shut the womb, says God, says your God? Thus far God's word. The salvation of the city of God will come suddenly. We see this over and over again in scripture. We see here, he say it's birth without labor. It's a land being born in a day. And as soon as labor begins, there's a child. And this is something that we see over and over in God's word where God's people waited waited for God's 
salvation, waited for his redemption, waited in shame, waited in shame, waiting for the Lord to remove their shame. And then it happened in an instant. Israel would be put into exile, wouldn't they, for their sin against God. They would be put and taken away into exile. They would be under the hand of the Babylonians. But God promised that that shame would be removed in a day. And that happened. It happened. Many years after Isaiah prophesied it, a decree from Cyrus came. And in a day, Israel went from being exiles to being free. He declared that they ought to go back to their land if they wanted to. He gave them provision and food and supplies to rebuild the temple and offer sacrifices. All that nightmare erased in one day, just instant. It became a memory. And this is a pattern that the Lord used in salvation. And we're talked about, it talks about another day where in an instant, Israel's salvation would come. Now, if we go back to Isaiah 9, it says that there will be a salvation that comes upon the people suddenly, and that will be at the birth of a son. For unto you a child is born, to us a son is given. And that happened when the Lord Jesus Christ was born, where Israel's salvation came. There was a day in which it wasn't there, and their salvation came to them. And it was in that little baby boy lying in a manger in Bethlehem. Their salvation had come. He was there. The other thing that happened is at the end of his life, all of God's people's punishment was placed on the Lord Jesus. Hanging on a cross, all of their judgment, all of their punishment that they deserve from God, all the wrath of God that they deserve from God for their sins, in an instant, was paid. There was not a gradual paying off their debt. There was not a gradual paying off their debt to God and paying for their sins and taking the wrath of God. No. Dear friends, if you belong to the Lord Jesus, if your faith is in him, then your salvation came suddenly on the cross so that when the Lord Jesus cried out right before he died, he cried out, it is finished. Not it is begun but it is finished. And this passage talked about this passage talks about labor and childbirth and so we see the city of God there's a son born to the city of God, right? And we know who that is the Lord Jesus Christ, but but if we look down further we see now all of a sudden we're talking about many children, don't we? We see many children, many people being comforted There's a son born that would bring many sons to glory. There are now many children. We see that in the end of verse 8. For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children, plural. Now, dear friends, the reasons, the reason that we are not fools to hope in God, the reason that we are not fools to hope in the Lord is because there was a man born, a man who was born who perfectly trembled at the word of God, Every single time he heard the word of God, it had the perfect impact on him. He loved God's commands, and they shaped him perfectly. He trusted in God's promises, and they shaped him perfectly. He was the first man ever that every single time the word of God was applied to him, he responded perfectly. 
Forgiveness, dear friends, is not gradual. It's sudden. The minute you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are added to his body. You are part of his bride. You are one with him. If you are a Christian, you're not now working off your old sins. You are not working to gradually pay off your debt. You can be confident that God's word assures you that your sins are paid for. Because they were paid for with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. It didn't start a process where you would gain your forgiveness, but it happened in that moment. So dear brothers and sisters, if your salvation rests in Christ, if you hear that gospel and you believe it, and if that is enough, if you believe that Christ's death and resurrection is enough for you to be saved, then it is. And you can be sure that God will not leave you in the shame that you maybe now feel, but you will one day be rewarded with Christ's salvation. Even if it looks bleak and shameful now, salvation is promised to come in a moment when the Lord Jesus returns and all will be made right and he will restore those things. Lastly, the last point is this, peace Joy, peace, comfort, and glory are only found in the bride of the Messiah. Let's finish off this passage. Let's read 10 to 14. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. And the glory of the nations, like an overflowing stream, you shall nurse, you shall be carried on her hip and bounced on her knee, upon her knees, as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you. So shall be comforted. So you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show indignation against his enemies. Thus far God's word. And so here is the response to those mocking words that we found earlier in the passage where the false believers, the people who were part of the worship of God's people, but who mocked the people who were satisfied in God's word alone. And God's word alone was sufficient for them to trust God and follow him. Those people who mocked them, they mocked them for their joy. You shouldn't be rejoicing in God. You shouldn't have joy in God, and you shouldn't look forward to it. What you have done is not enough. What you have done is shameful. And now, here is God's response to that word, who said, we'll see your joy, sarcastically. And the Lord says, you shall see. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice, in verse 14. Dear brothers and sisters, we're reminded of the sweet blessings that maybe we sometimes forget. The sweet blessings that belong to Zion, the city of God, the bride of the Messiah. This is the sweet blessing of rejoicing, of gladness, satisfaction, consolation, delight, peace like a river, and comfort. 
What I want us to see is that this belongs only to the bride. There is not a category for somebody who's not part of the bride of Christ. Only, this is only to be found in Zion. Zion, the name of the city of God's people or the people of God, the bride of Christ, all who trust in the Lord Jesus. Only those who are glad with Zion and in Zion. The door is incredibly narrow to heaven, dear brothers and sisters. The door is incredibly narrow. It is not just people who do a really good job at the Ten Commandments. The door is as narrow as only one man being able to go through it. Because you have to have obeyed God's law perfectly. There's no sense that Jesus entered into heaven by his obedience and the door, and we can just follow in after him. That we can maybe follow his example, you know, not perfectly, but a good enough job and get in. There is only room, the door is only is narrow enough that only one man could pass through it. But dear friends, the good news is that when he went in, his body comes with him. All those who trust in him are united to him. Zion, New Jerusalem, the church, is called his bride. And the bride, the church, is joined to Christ, and the two are made one flesh. And what does God say about two becoming one flesh? What God has joined together, let no man tear apart. Dear friends, there is only one way to be somebody who receives those blessings of consolation and peace and satisfaction and joy in the Lord. That is not to follow in Jesus' footsteps, but to be part of his own body. And we are added to him by faith, by hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus, that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. And not thinking that's just inspiring. No, but we hear that and we tremble and we think there's, there's a way to be saved. I know the law couldn't save me. Imitating Christ couldn't save me. Loving Christ couldn't save me. Oh, but Christ took my sin and my punishment and rose from the dead. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that he reconciled me to God. And so for the church, the bride, there is great comfort. Lots of words about being comforted. Comfort in your affliction. Maybe you need to be comforted in your, your fear of being cast away from God. Maybe you worry. Maybe you worry that when you die, you would not be with the Lord because you have been too sinful. Maybe you worry that the Lord would not care about you. Oh, dear friends, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus... He wants to comfort you in that. He wants to assure you that you are one who will be comforted. All the pain and suffering that we, that we suffer in this world, whether that is the betrayal of a loved one, or the loss of a job, or the death of a loved one, or maybe a sickness that you know is going to end your life. Right now we wait with suffering. We have great joy in the Lord, but there, it is mixed with suffering. But he promises that if you are part of that bride, the bride who trembles at his word, who hears it and loves it and is moved by it, and I don't just mean like 
move like a song moves you, but moves. It can take you, it turns you, it shapes you. And all of these comforts and promises are ours. We'll be satisfied in God, he promises. Did you notice that? Isn't it true that all of the idolatry around us, whether it's religious idolatry or the idolatry of sex or money or fame or possessions, isn't it true all of that is because we feel like we need to be satisfied and we're turning to all kinds of things to satisfy us? Turn to religion to satisfy us? Oh, dear friends, that you would be satisfied. That is a promise that all that aching and longing will be satisfied but only for those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. He promises to console us and to comfort us and to give us peace like a puddle. No. Peace like a creek. No. Peace like a river. Full and flowing and refreshing and never ending. That is ours, dear church, if our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is not for everyone this passage ends on a pretty, a note of warning, doesn't it? Verse 14, you shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Dear friends, this is a good opportunity to test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Not if you've kept the law of God good enough. If you think that you have, then you definitely aren't in the faith. This is a good opportunity to test yourself to see if you are, you are in the faith. Not, do you go to church regularly? Not, do you want to go to heaven? Not, do you, do some, do you obey some of the laws of God? No. But God's word, can it confront you? Can it correct you? And when you hear the gospel, do you believe the gospel? And is the gospel enough? Is the gospel enough? Do you believe the gospel is enough to reconcile you to God? Is that that you believe in Christ's death and resurrection alone? And since he saved you, do you then follow his commands? Not perfectly, but when you are straying, that his commands can correct you because it's not the correction of a stranger. It is the voice of your good shepherd who's already died for you, has been risen from the dead to give you new life. This is a good thing to think about. Have I just used God's word or is it something that causes me to tremble? That all of it can correct me and all of it can encourage me. Only one person trembled at the word of God perfectly. And dear Christians, it is very good that our hope is not in our ability to do that, but that he did it and that we are united to him by faith. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper right now, which is a gift from God. It's his word made visible. And it is meant to strengthen the faith of those people who believe in the Lord Jesus, to help us to tremble at his word to obey his commands, but to trust his promises. And the promises that are made visible with the Lord's Supper is that Christ's death, Christ's death reconciles us to God. 
that he bore our punishment, that he died our death, and that for anybody who believes in Christ, his blood was shed instead of us. And as the Lord's Supper was given to churches, we'll celebrate this as a church. And so if you're not a member of a church, not part of a church, and you trust in Christ, we're glad you're here. We'd ask that you'd watch and that you would be encouraged and strengthened by that, but not to participate. But if you are here, and your trust is in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and you are a member of a church, any church that trusts in this gospel, oh, we would offer it to you, and we ask, we urge you to take, to confess your faith in the promises of God. I'm going to ask that the elders come forward.